been from his word. What a lovely picture. Similar accounts of this are reported in each of the four Gospels with some variation. Matthew and John's version are closest to Mark and vice versa. However, John's account refers to the anointing of Jesus' feet rather than his head. Interestingly, John actually names the woman as Mary, the sister of Martha, who is serving at table, and her brother Lazarus, who is one of the dinner guests. Most commentators seem to be of the opinion that Matthew, Mark and John are recounting the same incident, whereas Luke's story is so dissimilar that it would seem to be a separate event entirely. We're focusing upon Mark this evening, obviously, and we have known from several preceding chapters that the religious leaders and the Jewish hierarchy are becoming more and more critical of Jesus and even more worried that his teaching is influencing sizable numbers of of people to question the established legalistic interpretation of of the Jewish teachings. In short, the religious leaders are feeling threatened and they're in danger of losing their authority over the people and their good standing with the Romans. We can get a measure of the dead disquiet in in verses 1 and 2 of this chapter. It's coming up to the Passover, and so huge numbers of folk from outlying areas will have come to Jerusalem. That means that there is likely to be a lot more support for Jesus in town than there would normally be. And so we read, the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him, but not during the festival, or the people may riot. And the last thing they want is a riot which would cause the Romans to look more closely. How devious. How hypocritical. How unlike what God has called them to be. Next, can I draw your attention to the fact that the host for this dinner is Simon the leper? Now, I'm sure that he had another name. You know, maybe Simon of Bethany. But the fact is that his appearance, the appearance of his illness on his body, had become his hallmark. Perhaps Jesus had healed him. Perhaps the disease had run its course. Perhaps he had a cutaneous, a superficial skin type of leprosy that in due time was no longer contagious. Perhaps he had one of a number of other skin conditions because, you see, leprosy was so terrifying a disease in those days that anything that looked like leprosy, anything that involved eruptions on the skin, was automatically grouped with it. So it was not always clear that it was leprosy, and it certainly wasn't unusual, or certainly wasn't uncommon, for the condition to have run its course, and therefore to be 
non-contagious. Interestingly, there was a laid-down protocol for a leper being declared cured. And it involved them being inspected by a priest and then offering a sacrifice. Whether he was contagious or not, the fact that he had the appearance of leprosy, the fact that he was still being called the leper, meant that he was ostracized by society. So here was Jesus dining with a purpose who the rest of society didn't want to know. This is yet another example of Jesus demonstrating his love and compassion with the wrong sort. To dine at his home too, and to do so openly. So now we meet this woman. Whether or not it is Mary, Lazarus's sister, we cannot be sure. But clearly it's someone who has been blessed by Jesus, who has discovered that amazing love that we sang about ourselves a few minutes ago. She knew that she was in the presence of Jesus, her saviour. And she knew who he was and what he had done. And that relationship predated this event. She wanted to pay public homage to her saviour. To show her love and to do so in a way that will resonate down through the centuries. Although clearly that wasn't her intention at the time. She brought an alabaster jar of hugely expensive ointment called nard, which came from India and was made from the flowers and the roots of a particular wildflower in certain isolated areas of India. Maybe she and her family had been saving this perfume for her marriage. Or perhaps it was ready for a funeral. Because covering bodies with perfume at death was common practice. And middle-class or well-off families may well have had a container of perfume ready in their home for one of their relatives. We just don't know. Whatever it was for, the value of this alabaster jar, this jar full, was such that it would not have been used routinely and certainly not as perfume sparingly over a period of time. It was just too good, too expensive. And she anointed Jesus' head at least. Whether or not that includes feet, we don't know. But she anointed his head and that in itself was significant. And notice too that she broke the jar so that all of the contents had to be used. There were to be no leftovers. William Barclay, in his commentary, speaks of a revered family member or public figure being anointed or covered with perfume at death, and the broken, empty container was entombed with the body, a ritual demonstrating respect, an illustration of esteem or of love. And how interesting that when Jesus chastises his disciples for their criticism of what they deem to be wastefulness, he demonstrates insight 
to the point that we can recognize that this loving action of the woman in anointing his head and his and possibly his body is truly prophetic. To me, that implies that God had prompted her to do it. To provide an illustration for Jesus' often repeated claim that he was that he was that he was coming to a point at which he was going to die. Jesus not only defends this woman's actions in a loving way, but he also uses the occasion to inform others of what is going to take place in just a very few days. There's been much said over the years about Jesus' response to those who complained about wastefulness of this act of love, that the perfume could have been sold for a year's salary to give to the poor. I have to say to me, I don't think it's certain that the poor were at the forefront of their thinking, but maybe that's just me being unkind. Nevertheless, Jesus has a response for them. The poor you will have you will always have with you and you can help them at any time you want but you will not always have me implicitly saying you've only got a few days because that's what it amounted to defending the woman's extravagant action Jesus says she did what she could she poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial Truly I tell you, says Jesus, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. As we think about how we can apply this Bible teaching to ourselves, please can I go back and focus on a phrase that Jesus used in our text. She has done a beautiful thing for me. She has done a beautiful thing. I mentioned William Barclay's commentary earlier. He refers to two Greek words for good, for doing good. There is agathos, which describes doing something that is morally good even though it may be a harsh thing, an unpopular thing, a tough or unattractive action. And then there is another Greek word, which is kalos, which describes something as being not only good, but lovely. And it is kalos that's been used in this text. She has done a beautiful thing to me. She's done a lovely thing. William Barclay's got another way of putting it as well in his commentary. And because we know that in his day he was something of a doer Scot, I could quote from his book, and he would have, and he actually said, "It would do the church more good than anything else if each Christian." would make a point of doing something bonny from time to time. Something bonny, something lovely, something beautiful. When we think of this nameless woman who has gone down in history for doing a beautiful thing, what can we learn about 
doing beautiful things for God ourselves. How can we do beautiful things? Well, doing a beautiful thing for God does not count the cost. That's the first thing. This woman that we've read about this evening offered the most prized possession. Possibly saved for her wedding or for a funeral. She broke the jar so that all of the perfume was used. Its value was equal to more than a year's wages. And for us, doing a beautiful thing for God may be going the extra mile to honour God's name and to bless others so that we do honour God's name. Perhaps you could add as a footnote to that, if you're going to do it for a person, try and do it while they're alive and not when they're dead. (laughs) A second point, doing a beautiful thing for God is an act of humility. In Jesus' time, the woman had loose hair in public, reflecting a bad image. But she wasn't bothered. Only servants normally washed feet attended to guests, but once again, she was humble in what she did. So for us, the beauty of the beautiful things that we can do for God is reflected perhaps in how we do it. We can do good things, we can do helpful things, we can do worthwhile things. We can and often do that stuff when perhaps having a bit of a moan or complaining about others who are not doing those things, who are not helping. But God will not call those things beautiful. And here's a third thing. Doing a beautiful thing for God points to the cross. According to Jesus' words, the perfume was poured on his body beforehand to prepare for his burial. What she did pointed people to Christ's coming sacrifice. All she wanted to do was express that deep love, having become aware of his amazing love. When we do something beautiful for God tomorrow or this week, it will resonate with the love of God. If we think about doing something for a fellow Christian, we might want to remember a well-trodden verse, John thirteen thirty-four: A new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. A beautiful thing. But if we're taking that further, showing God's love, doing a beautiful thing, an unselfish thing for God outside... 
then please could we remember a verse that became prominent this morning as Martin was speaking to us. From Matthew 25 and verse 40, the king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Loving Lord, we thank you for this beautiful story about a beautiful thing that a woman did for the Lord Jesus. In the midst of criticism, in the midst of rebuke, in the midst of opposition, she did a beautiful thing in response to the amazing love that she had experienced. And she wanted to give back that love in any way that she could to the maximum that was possible for her. And we thank you, Lord, for that unselfish example We ask, Lord, that it would inspire each of us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.